Now, I've gotten to spend a lot of time uh, these last several weeks pondering what God's Word has to say to us about the matter of giving, and it has a whole lot (laughs) to say to us on the subject in both Testaments. And at the most fundamental level, the Bible lays out really only two essential modes or attitudes of the heart when it comes to giving. And they're dramatically different than each other. There's a, a, an infinite and radical difference between serving God and men out of a sense of burden and serving God and men out of a sense of gratitude. The first one always looks kind of like this. Water trickling out of a, a spray nozzle that's capable of much more. And the second always looks like this. A fountain that's gushing, that's overflowing, that's impacting everybody in beautiful ways. The first is impossible to do any other way than grudgingly. And the second is impossible to do any other way than joyfully. When it comes to the matter of giving back to God what He has put in your hands, which of those approaches characterizes you? In this final of three installments on our discussion of the biblical theme of giving, which was originally supposed to be one message, (laughs) I pray that more than anything else, we will walk away this morning with a clearer understanding of the overflowing generosity, the joyful and extravagant heart of giving that God creates in us when our giving is simply a response to what we have been given. The last verse of that passage we just read says, For you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich with a wealth that never goes away. I want to start this morning with a question, who gets the privilege of giving? Now, it would be easy to phrase that question as, who is supposed to give? And that's actually a legitimate question from a biblical perspective, because throughout the Bible, giving back from the the money and possessions that God has put into our hands is expected of God's redeemed people. And I'm going to use the word should several times in this message because it's really hard to talk about this theme without using that word. But asking who should give is a lot like asking who should love or who should forgive. Perhaps a better way to phrase the question as it relates to giving is which of us have been given cause to give. And as we'll see this morning, the, the full form of the question as God would present it is more like, who gets to participate in the privilege and blessing of giving, of acting on God's behalf as His agents in caring for the needs of other people and supporting His work of ministry? 
from a heart that is filled to overflowing with gratitude and joy. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, Paul is telling the Corinthians the same thing that he said to the churches in the region of Galatia. He says, On the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And he's talking about collections that were being made in several different churches to provide for the needs of the church at Jerusalem, which was heavily persecuted and dirt poor. And in that verse, is anyone excluded from this appeal? I would have to say no. He says, let each one of you put aside as he may prosper. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, (laughs) 6 and 7, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul encourages every believer to give back to God for his use a meaningful portion of all that God has placed in his hands. But isn't it true that some believers don't have enough to even cover their own basic physical needs? Surely God doesn't intend for them to give to others when they need to be the ones receiving, does He? (laughs) That's a good question. It's an important question. But again, it's loaded with assumptions about giving that don't fit with what God has to say on the subject. And this will become clearer as we proceed. For now, suffice it to say that Giving is a blessed privilege in which every believer gets to participate. And that's because God wants every believer to receive the blessing that's associated with it. Now, how and how much are we to give? As we figure out the how part, the how much part will, will fall into place. I'm going to borrow several categories this morning from Randy Alcorn's chapter on giving from his excellent book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, to address what I believe to be God's answer to those two important questions. How are we to give, and how much are we to give? First, the model of giving that we find in the New Testament, just as in the Old, is that every believer is to give regularly and to give intentionally. And I put those two together because they're very strongly tied to each other. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, again, Paul is giving the same instructions to the church at Corinth that had been given to the churches at Galatia. On the first day of each week, each believer was to set aside what he had thoughtfully determined to give. Now, this ensured that each believer in Corinth would have an opportunity to be intentional about his gift. It also ensured that when Paul finally came to Corinth, There wouldn't be a bunch of impulsive, last-minute giving. In Acts 11.29, there was a contribution being gathered also for the support of the saints in Judea, the region of Jerusalem, 
And this is going on in this passage is going on in the church in Antioch. It says, In the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. Again, we see the act of giving was intentional. It was not impulsive. Each believer at Antioch determined how he or she would participate in this gift. God wants our giving to be a joyful spiritual discipline, not an afterthought. A couple of weeks ago when we looked at principles of giving that carry over from the commandments of the law of Moses, even though we're no longer required to observe the, the letter of those commandments, <clears throat> we, we talked about the first fruits offerings. And we, we saw the, the theme kind of played out and ratcheted up in several different aspects of the offerings. The first fruits, the offering of the first and the best of all things, and the offering of the firstborn. And then also the blood and the, the blood and the fat, which is the best and the life of, of each sacrificial animal. Now when when I talked about that before, I asked you a question, which is what is the first check that you write each month? <laughs> it's dangerous to ask questions like that because they're often misunderstood. I did not pose that question to, to suggest that we adopt a new rule to replace the old ones. I Pose that question to stir up your thinking and mine about how intentional we are regarding what we give and when we give it. In fact, on a personal level, my thought (laughs) was because I've been asking myself that question. And my thought is, what if instead of hastily writing a check to support the ministries of CBC just before Debbie and I head to church on a given Sunday... We write that check as soon as we get paid. Before we spend another dime on anything or write another check to pay any other bill. Even if, it, even if it's not till the next Sunday that we put the check in the offering plate, isn't that a, a great memorial, a reminder to us about the priority that belongs to God? That He's worthy of the first and the best of all that He's put in our hands. It's just a little... Reminder. That's all I was suggesting. Now, there are all kinds of ways to do reminders like that, and there's not a one of them (laughs) that is a cure-all for a haphazard approach to any aspect of the Christian life. But reminders are useful. Now, there are also many ways to make giving more convenient, right? (laughs) You can... You can set up an automatic payment so that you never even have to think about the money that goes to a missionary or to the church. But I think we would do well to give some thought to which approaches for us personally nudge us to be purposeful, intentional, and prayerful as we give. We're to give Regularly, and we're to give intentionally, we're also to give quietly. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. It can't be both. When therefore you give alms, that means 
gifts for those who are poor. Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and that your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Now when Jesus refers here to the hypocrites, he's talking about the religious leaders of his day, particularly the Pharisees, who proved that their actions, by their actions, that their real concern was not for the pleasure of God, but for the approval of men. And they did this in many respects. I've been in churches uh, that have little brass plaques tacked at intervals every few feet to the back of ornate wooden pews, and each plaque has the name of the person who donated the money that paid for that pew. I've been in churches where you walk in the children's wing, and it says, there's a little sign out front that says, Billy Bob Big Bucks Children's and Youth Building. Those are memorials to people. That is the world's way of doing things. It's never God's way of doing things. When we give to others, we give to honor God, not to exalt ourselves. If you give for show, it's a whole lot better not to give at all. Now, in your giving, if you're seeking the praise of men or you're seeking to gain some advantage with men, Jesus makes the equation very clear. He says, you're forfeiting the blessing that God has for you in giving. And that's a really dopey and short-sighted thing to do, isn't it? When you're giving money back to God, either toward a specific use or for whatever use he deems appropriate, anonymity is generally the way to go. Nobody but you and God needs to know what you gave. Here at CBC, the only person who knows what anybody gives is our bookkeeper who has to process the offering checks. And she has an impeccable reputation for being completely discreet with that information. And that reputation has persisted for decades The elders never ask her who gave how much. And if any of them ever did, she'd know better than to tell us. Anonymous giving is is a very useful safeguard against all kinds of deviations from God's design for our giving. But as with all of godliness, it's all about the heart. And there may be times when anonymous is not quite the best way to handle it. I've known of some specific cases where a person received a particular blessing by knowing who was doing the giving. And I'll, I'll be happy to give you more specifics without names uh, offline sometime if you, wanna, if, you, if you don't understand how that might happen. Rules uh, often tend to, to get in the way of real ministry. So anonymous giving is not a rule. It's a rule of thumb. Jesus, who rebuked the Pharisees for making a show of giving alms to the poor very publicly, did not rebuke the widow for giving to the temple treasury in public view because that's where the money was collected. Instead, he commended her because he he knew her heart, and this is about the heart. Give regularly and intentionally. Give quietly and give according to your ability. Acts chapter 11 
verses 27 to 30. Again, this is, this is the church at Antioch that's at issue. And it says, verse 29, In the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And I want to draw your attention there to the term, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means. 1 Corinthians 16 again. On the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper. See, under the new covenant, God doesn't give us a percentage of income as a benchmark for giving. So don't look for one. (laughs) There's a lot of talk about this in the New Testament church. And I'll point you back to the message from a couple of weeks ago. If you really want to make the tithe, the Old Testament tithe, the benchmark for New Testament giving, there were three tithes, and they totaled 23.33%, not 10%. Percentages don't have anything to do with giving that comes from the heart, from a heart of gratitude. Nothing at all. Now, it's perfectly fine for you, you and your wife, your household, to, to use a percentage as the, your benchmark for giving. But keep that percentage to yourself. Nobody else needs to know it, and you most certainly don't need to impose it on anybody else. Give according to your ability. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Very interesting passage. This follows the passage we read at the beginning. Paul says, if the readiness is present, talking to the Corinthians, he says, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. And that last verse is citing the manna passage in Exodus 16. This is not about enforced economic equivalence in the body of Christ. It's not about each Christian having exactly the same amount of money and stuff. It's about a heart that longs to see to it that no brother or sister in Christ lacks any good provision from the hand of God that God might want to use me to provide. In the early church, some believers had houses big enough to support church, uh, house churches. Uh, others were just bond servants. They were slaves who had absolutely no control over their housing situations. So not everybody had the same physical provision. But verse 15 of that passage provides the guiding principle. The point is, none will lack what they need and no one will have too much. This is about very intentionally and joyfully treating the money and things that God puts in your hands as tools in the hands of God. Not some of it, but all of it. Instruments of blessing to your fellow saints and to others just as they are instruments of blessing to you and to your family. And that leads very nicely to the next and very, very important aspect of the biblical spirit of giving, and that is to give voluntarily, joyfully, and gratefully. And I love this part. Second Corinthians, again, chapter 9, 
the passage that we read at the beginning, tells us we are not to give grudgingly or under compulsion, but cheerfully. It's the, the Greek word is the word from which we get the word hilarious. Give cheerfully, just as each one is purposed in his heart. Look again at Paul's marvelous description here of the heart of the Macedonian believers with regard to giving. Is there any hint of reluctance to give? Is there any sense of burden in that passage? Now there's a very interesting and very powerful contrast here between two groups of believers. Those to whom Paul is speaking and those about whom Paul is speaking. The Macedonian believers in cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea lived in deep poverty. They were suffering severe persecution for their faith that had placed them under a great ordeal of affliction. If you read First and Second Thessalonians, it appears that some of them were dying for their faith. The Corinthian believers, on the other hand, enjoyed greater financial prosperity. By comparison, they were not facing the same level of intense persecution that the Macedonian churches were. They were persecuted. They weren't as persecuted by quite a lot. Just as in other cities in the Roman Empire, <laughs> the leadership in the Jewish synagogues were the fiercest opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the local authorities in Corinth and Athens uh, were more influenced by the Greek mindset, which was very tolerant. Uh, they, they loved philosophy. Just look at Acts chapter 17 and Paul's encounter, his discussion with the Athenians. Uh, in those Greek cities like Corinth, the Jews got less cooperation from the governing authorities when it came to persecuting Christians than they got in other places. Now, if you had no more information about these two groups of believers than what's up there, and someone told you that one of those two groups of Christians overflowed in rich generosity, that they were commended by Paul for doing so with an abundance of joy. While the other group of believers had to be repeatedly nudged by Paul to follow through with contributing to the needs of the saints as they had said that they would, and they had to be exhorted to do so with a godly and joyful attitude instead of doing so begrudgingly. To which of those two groups of believers would you expect those two approaches to fit? And by the way, Paul accepted support for his own ministry from one of those two groups and flatly refused to accept support for his ministry from the other group. Guess which was which. The reality that we see reflected in the contrast here is a very predictable one. The poor and heavily persecuted Macedonians were the ones who didn't have to be cajoled into giving. They were the ones who begged Paul for the privilege of participation in giving to the needs of the saints. We tend to think that the believers who are going to be the most eager to generously address needs will be those whom God has most richly blessed in this life with material provision and comfort. But that's actually not how it plays out. We say... Man, if God would let me win the lottery, 
I'd give most of it right back to him. And wouldn't that be great for him? But that's not typically the way it works out. See, material wealth and relative comfort tend to work against generous and joyful giving. And that doesn't mean there's no such thing as a believer whom God has blessed with material prosperity who gives generously. I know quite a few of them, (laughs) and some of them put me to shame when it comes to giving. But it just means that this is not uh, this is not how the relationship between material wealth and generosity tends to play out. Now, this contrast between the Macedonian believers and the Corinthian believers brings up another very interesting and important point. When a child of God doesn't have an eager and heartfelt zeal to give a meaningful portion of what God has given to him back to God, and really to lay all of it out for God's use, the problem, the problem is never a deficit of ability. The problem is always a deficit of gratitude. And until that deficit is fixed, whatever that person gives is filthy rags in the eyes of God. The God who has given everything to us at the cost of his own son's life, has no interest at all in what we begrudgingly give back to him, and neither should we. Are we like those poverty-stricken saints in Macedonia who came to Paul of their own accord begging with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the needs of the saints? Or are we maybe more like the Corinthians having to be elbowed into carrying through with our supposed intention to give because we really don't want all that much to part with what God has put into our hands. It's noteworthy that the very first verse of the central passage this morning in 2 Corinthians 8 begins with God's grace as the focus. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you what? The grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Not the graciousness of the Macedonian believers, but the grace of God that produced that gracious and generous spirit in those dear saints. And Paul ends this two-chapter exhortation to the Corinthians on the matter of giving with the exact same focus. In 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. The grace that we extend to others through our giving is a response a response to and an extension of the indescribable, abundant, extravagant, overflowing grace that God has poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. The believer who knows what he deserves and who knows what he has been given in Christ doesn't have to be told to joyfully and cheerfully give. He purposes in his heart to give and he gives. He gives according to his ability and beyond his ability because he's eager to do so, not because he's obligated to do so. If you're anxiously looking for God to pin down for you exactly how much you're supposed to give, maybe there's an attitude problem. (laughs) What God wants us to do is to embrace his entirely grace-oriented parameters for giving 
Those are the ones that he has set out before us as his children. Uh, it's actually a good thing that we don't have rules to tell us how much to give. Not a bad thing. Because it's supposed to be about the heart. It's supposed to be about grace. It's a joyful, it's a, it's a joyful privilege. Give voluntarily, joyfully, and gratefully, and give for eternal profit. In Philippians 4, verses 14 to 17, Paul commends the saints at Philippi for contributing to his ministry to support his work. In fact, he commends them for doing so when nobody else did so. But in verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I, Paul, seek for the profit which increases to your account. And in 2 Corinthians 8, Immediately after Paul nudges the Corinthian believers to have that same magnanimous, that overflowing heart in giving that he saw in the poorer and, poorer and more heavily persecuted Macedonian saints, he says this. He says, I give my opinion in this matter, Corinthians, for this is to your advantage. This is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it. (laughs) So that just as there was the readiness to desire it, there may be also the completion of it by your ability. What is this profit? What is this advantage that accrues to us when we give? Well, hope that is seen is not hope. Romans 8, 24 and 25. So the profit that matters isn't about what we get here and now. It's about what we lay up for the day when we stand in the presence of God. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, verses 19 to 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, it's not a bad thing for us who get to share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ to look forward to that inheritance. That's the profit that we rightly seek. That's true treasure that will endure forever. That great Christian poem, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The rest is going to go away. Why waste time and energy and anxiety on a mirage when you can invest in the real deal and never lose it? What profit are you truly seeking? Beloved, what if Jesus really meant what he said? What would that do to our lives? To the way we deal with the things that he puts into our hands. What if he really meant what he said? Give for eternal profit and give extravagantly. Second Corinthians 8 again tells us, Paul. Uh, we see that Paul is commending the Macedonian believers for giving beyond their ability in their deep poverty. <laughs> and in the, in the light of that poverty, he says they, <coughs> they overflowed in the wealth of their liberality, their generosity overflowed wealth, liberality, the three words in one sentence that have to do with abundance. 
their generosity gushed. Let me ask this question. Does any passage in the New Testament rebuke a believer for giving too extravagantly? In Matthew 26, Jesus praised the woman who lovingly poured a jar of very expensive perfume over his head. The disciples were upset that that woman, a sinner, wasted that perfume when it could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. Jesus cast aside their complaint and he made it very clear that her priorities were the right ones, not theirs. But it's significant that neither Jesus nor the disciples who had been hanging out with Jesus for about three years and hearing everything that he had to say, neither of them told the woman that she was foolish to part with something that valuable. Jesus didn't tell her that she should be more measured about her generosity. Instead, he praised her for her extravagance, for being unmeasured. In Luke 21, verses 1 through 4, Jesus praised the widow who gave her last two coins to the temple treasury. And he said she had given more than anyone else, for all the rest of them gave from their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Does any passage in the New Testament rebuke a believer for giving too extravagantly? If not, then why do we? There have been times when I have counseled certain brothers or sisters in Christ to be very cautious and measured about their giving because of their own limited financial circumstances. I base that counsel on things like making sure they won't be a burden on their families later or being careful to make the best use of their money, not just good use. You've got to study it. Let me tell you, in the last three weeks as I've poured over what God has to say about all this, He has shut me down on that kind of thinking. The believer who has received the extravagant, abundant, overflowing grace of God in Jesus Christ and who has received God's direct promise that if he seeks first his kingdom and his righteousness, he will lack for nothing. That believer is eager to give extravagantly and any believer who gets in his way is serving man's purposes, not God's. Now, as soon as I say those words, some of us start thinking about the exceptions and the qualifications. And guys, that's just a symptom of what's wrong with our hearts. You'll find exceptions to anything. Our problem is not that we're not good at the exceptions. Our problem is that we're not good at extravagance because we're not grateful to God. So yes, be intentional, be strategic, be thoughtful. Be careful and prayerful about the privilege of giving, but in all those things, be joyfully extravagant. And finally, give from every resource. This is not just about money. We've talked mostly in terms of money and possessions the last few weeks. Is what we do with those material blessings is a, is a critical test of what's in our hearts. But when you fill out the rest of the picture, you realize that giving is something you do with every fiber of your being. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 said when he talked about these Macedonian believers that gave from, from their lack, 
He said, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They gave themselves. Some believers use money as a way to keep other people's problems at a convenient distance. They write a check that doesn't put too big a dent in their bank account while studiously avoiding any investment of time or emotional energy or relationship that might actually make the difference that only love can make in the life of another person. Every resource that we have to give was given to us for God's use. All of it. Very often our money is less useful to God than some other resource, like our time, our comfort, our hospitality, our encouragement, our prayers, our hands filled with lawn maintenance tools or plumbing tools or cooking utensils or even wire strippers. One brother on Wednesday morning in our discussion last week told me about something he had heard from Paul Lockie. Paul's very pithy. He says things that stick with you. He said, don't make a beggar out of a brother. To a brother or sister in Christ who's out of work or ill or injured or who's suffered the loss of a loved one, we often say, brother, let me know how I can help you. And we mean it. We would love to know how we can be of assistance. (laughs) But what if instead we anticipated that brother's need and we acted on the assumption that if God gave us the ability to meet it, he intends for us to meet it. And then we went and we met it. What if we took the approach, unless my brother tells me not to address his apparent need, I'm going to address it. So when a brother in Christ who normally mows his own yard gets sick or injured or is taking care of a sick wife, you go mow his yard. Let's say he had already scheduled his lawn, a lawn service that he doesn't normally use to come and mow his yard later that afternoon. And so... He has to call them and say, sorry for the late notice, but a guy from my church just came by unannounced and mowed the yard for me. That'd be awful, wouldn't it? No, that'd be honoring and delightful to God, and it could be a very useful testimony to somebody at that lawn service about how Christians act when they love each other. Who knows? You might even get a good cup of coffee and great fellowship out of it with the guy whose lawn you mowed. I'll quit with this. Above all else... Give to follow Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know it? Because you've received it. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. Our giving is a joyful response to what we have been given by God, just as our love is a response to the love we have received from God, the love whose breadth and length and height and depth surpasses knowledge. Just as our forgiveness toward others is a paying forward of His forgiveness of the infinite debt that we owed to God because of our sin. When we stop, even for a moment, to ponder what we have been given in Jesus Christ. Nobody has to tell us to give extravagantly from that overflowing fountain of life. Father, make us extravagant, grateful, joyful givers. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.